Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Well, hey guys, good morning, First Baptist Hanford. Uh, I am so glad to be with you guys today. And, uh, and as Kyle said, I'm not Pastor Peter. Um, I'm a little younger than him, but I, I think he actually has me beaten most other ways. Um, so yeah, so I am Seth Kurtz. I'm the associate pastor at South Valley Community Church. And, and basically, I help people to take their next steps, right? I tell people assimilation and discipleship, and then they just look at me funny. And I just, I do next steps. I tell people I'm a professional handholder. That's what I do. And, uh, and I also get to preach from time to time. So um, hopefully that translates over here, and this isn't horrible. But, uh, but I am honored that Peter has given me the opportunity to come and preach and I'm excited to get the opportunity to look into the Word of God this morning with all of you. And, uh, and I know that you have been talking about discipleship for some time now. So hopefully you're not sick of it, because I'm going to talk about it just a little bit more today. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about myself, but not the stuff that you're probably expecting to hear. Uh, um, so I have a lot of aunts and uncles, like, like a lot of them. Uh, see, my mom had one brother, but my dad was one of seven, but he was also adopted. And if I remember correctly, then the biological side of his family, he's also one of an additional seven. Um, so a lot of uncles and aunts, uh, and I mostly, I mostly know the side of the family that he was adopted into. And my dad has a brother named Danny, and his brother Danny grew up and he married a woman named Sheila. And I don't quite actually know them as Uncle Danny and Aunt Sheila. Um, see, my Uncle Danny, like, that's fine. That's, that's what I call him. He's Uncle Danny. That's normal. But my aunt taught me not to call her Aunt Sheila. She was actually very specific that I call her Aunt Princess Sheila. Emphasis on that princess bit. And see, the, the funny part is that as I was growing up, I thought nothing of this, right? Like, that's just normal. I mean, that's what all aunts tell their nephews, right? And uh, it was just one of those things that's, oh, yeah, her name is Aunt Princess Sheila. That's probably what's on her birth certificate. First name, aunt, middle name, princess, last name, Sheila. Makes sense. And uh, so it wasn't actually until I got to high school that I was talking to a friend of mine, and I, was, I, I ended up bringing up some of my family, and I mentioned my Aunt Princess Sheila. And as the words were coming out of my mouth, I thought to myself, this, this sounds weird, right? Are you ever talking to somebody and you're like, these words feel weird coming up? Like, something's not right. And that was the first time that it ever occurred to me what was going on and that she's only technically Aunt Sheila. She tricked me for years, right? But, and, and granted, at this point, she's still Aunt Princess Sheila. Like, there's no going back now. It's, it's set in stone. But, but that's the funny thing about belief, especially belief as a child, because what she told me, it shaped the way that I thought about her, it shaped the way that I talked about her, it shaped the way that I talked to her. Anything that had to do with my aunt was shaped by the fact that I believed her to be my aunt princess, Sheila. And you may be asking yourself, Seth, what does this have to do with the Bible? Well, I'm so glad, glad you, that you asked, because we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. And, uh, and I'm going to try to tie all this together and make it make sense for you, okay? So John chapter 3, it's a fairly familiar story, probably to most of you who grew up in church. And uh, we're just going to start right in verse 1. 
And right away it says this. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So, okay, first, can I tell you guys something that I love about preaching? Okay, now I know what Peter works with. Let me try that again. Can I tell you guys something that I love about preaching? All right, awesome. That was perfect. So, see, one of the things that I love is that as I'm reading through the scriptures and doing the preparation, right? Like, I've already picked the passage. I'm doing the prep work. And something in the scriptures so many times will just pop out to me for the first time. Like I'm, like I'm reading it with a brand new lens. And that happened during this preparation as well. And see, we're told a lot of things here about Nicodemus. We're told that he came to talk to Jesus at night. Right? Why did he come to talk to Jesus at night? Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because of the group that he was a part of. Nicodemus, it says, was a Pharisee, right? And that's important because these are the people who, as you read through the gospel narrative, these are the people who hated Jesus. These are the people who frequently challenged Jesus. These are the people who would eventually lead the charge for the crucifixion of Jesus. Those are the people that Nicodemus is a part of. And he's also a part of the, of, of the Jewish ruling council, which is also known as the Sanhedrin council. This is the same group of people that the apostle Paul would eventually be on before he was converted to Christianity, when he was still Saul and still persecuting Christians. But we see Nicodemus come to Jesus, and he says something really interesting that I didn't notice until this preparation. He says that we know that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. That we really stood out to me this time. So see, so it's possible that Nicodemus is coming to talk to Jesus because he's part of a group of Pharisees who genuinely believe that Jesus is sent from God. It's also possible that Nicodemus was completely alone on this among the Pharisees. It's entirely possible that Nicodemus was beginning to turn his back on his peers, on those who he had worked incredibly closely with on religious terms to get to know about this man, Jesus. This we very well may represent Nicodemus among the crowds of people who are coming to watch Jesus do miracles more than it is among his peers, among the Pharisees. And while all of this is conjecture, it's incredibly interesting to think that already at this point in the story, two verses in, already we may be seeing Nicodemus begin to realign himself away from those who are the religious leaders in order to meet Jesus. And I've found that to be the story of many people. But either way, Nicodemus has come at night to speak with Jesus. And maybe it was because he knew that the other Pharisees wouldn't approve. Maybe it was because he wanted to have the opportunity for a true one-on-one personal conversation with Jesus. But either way, here we are. And so we keep moving through the passage, and in verse 3, it says, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. See, I read this, and I'm, I had to pause for a second. I'm like, wait a second. He replied? Like, like, Nicodemus didn't even ask him anything. They haven't been really having a conversation at this point. Jesus, just out of nowhere, he replies and starts talking about the kingdom of God and being born again. Like, does anybody in here have that one friend that you start talking about something really simple, and suddenly they're just off the deep end talking about things that you're like, I can't keep. Like, it's that nerdy friend, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I threw Kyle under the bus first service because he's my nerdy friend, and, and we all know he can jump off the deep end on stuff like that. But, but this is Jesus in this story, right? This is Jesus who, as Nicodemus starts talking, Jesus is just all in. He's like, okay, we're talking about the kingdom of God, being born again, all that stuff. It's great. And, and so, out of nowhere, Jesus is talking about this. Nicodemus is confused, and he starts asking questions about what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? So in verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And thank goodness, right? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Got it? You totally feel like you're wrapping your minds around everything that Jesus is saying about being born again, the kingdom of God, and all that. Um, if you don't, that's okay, because neither did Nicodemus. <laughs> but here's the gist of what's going on. See, Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to wrap his mind around the fact that while we live in a physical world, there is very much a spiritual reality that we need to be aware of and connected to. See, the Apostle Paul, who is a follower of Jesus, he makes it incredibly clear to us in different places, such as his letter to the Romans or his letter to the Ephesians, that though we were born physically alive into this world, we were born spiritually dead. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells, or 2.1, excuse me, he tells us that because of the reality of sin, that we're all born dead in our sins. What, what good news, right? <laughs> Paul just laying it out there for us. Now, see, obviously, you're still living and breathing, like you're, you're alive, right, if you're here today, right? Okay, some of you are. Perfect. Right? <laughs> I'm worried about the rest of you. But see, Jesus is explaining that though we're, we're born physically alive, that we're born spiritually dead. And so there's this regeneration, this being brought back to life that needs to happen. And that's what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. But how does all of that work? Well, we keep reading through their conversation and we skip down to verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Good question, right? And it says, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I just love the way Jesus talks to these guys. And he says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you still do, excuse me, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And then he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, here's where it gets good, all right? Because this is where Jesus starts actually getting into the actual point of the whole conversation. He'd lay a little bit of groundwork first, do a little bit of work there, and now he's going to get into the main part of the conversation. See, let me, let me illustrate it this way. A couple years ago, my wife and I, we went on a vacation down to Southern California. We went down to watch a hockey game and uh, check out some different churches and to go to Disneyland because this is how my wife and I compromise. I love Anaheim hockey and she loves Anaheim Disney and it works for us, right? So we go down, that's what we do. Those are, those are normal trips for us. And, uh, and so on one particular Sunday, we decided that, hey, we're already down here. I've got no concept of geography. So I'm like, let's go to North Coast Church in Vista down by San Diego, right? LA's basically already in San Diego. It's not. Um, but so that's where we went. We go to church there. We go back after church. We, we eat some lunch in San Diego. And then because we've been driving so much, because of my genius ideas, we, uh, we end up deciding, we promise the kids that we'll take them to a park so they can get out of the car, they can play and, and do their thing. So we get to the park, and at that time, there's only one thing. My daughter at the time, Felicity, she was just obsessed with this one thing. Like the parents in here, do you guys understand? You, you know what I'm talking about when you, like your kid gets on that like one thing, and they are obsessed with that thing, and you have to have that thing with you at all times, no matter what, because if you don't, we won't get into that. But so my daughter's one thing, bubbles, right? Like she is just obsessed with bubbles. So we, we had them with us. We get to the park, and that's what she wants to do. She wants to go around. She wants to blow bubbles, and so we got the bubbles out of the car. We're letting her blow them, and she's chasing them. We're blowing some bubbles, and then the bubbles pique the interest of some other kids in the area, right? So these two other kids come over, and they're, they're watching us play, and their grandfather comes over with them, and he asks if his daughters can, or if his granddaughters can play with our kids. So we, we say, sure, he, they can go ahead and play with our kids, and we shared some of the bubbles and everything, and they were playing together. Their grandpa's watching them. And then at this random park in San Diego, this grandpa, whom we have never met before, says, you know what? I, I think I've got some bubble stuff in the car, actually. And then he turns to his granddaughters and tells them to stay with us. And he walks over a hill out of sight and he's gone. And my wife and I are like, like, what in the world just happened? Like, are these our kids now? Like, what if he doesn't come back? Well, like, what are we supposed to do? I don't even know these kids' names. And so, so we're trying to figure out what's going on. And, and you know, obviously, we were never going to figure out what's going on because so eventually we see, as we're trying to figure this out, this guy, we see his head start to bob back up over the hill. He's coming back, and he's just got loads of bubble stuff with him. And he comes back and he tells us that, you know, apparently bubbles are his thing. He's, he tells us he's a professional bubble blower, which I don't think is a real thing. Um, I'm sorry if that's you, but I'm still not convinced it's a real thing. And so see, here's what I want you to know. At the end of the day, this man genuinely believed that my wife and I were good enough people that he could leave his granddaughters with us, Right? 
And, and here's what I want you to understand. See, there are plenty of people who I think are good enough people to watch my kids. But I don't actually believe it well enough to leave my kids with them, right? Your parents in the room know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I think they can take care of my kids, but I'm not going to give it a shot. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know for sure. But see, this man believed it, no matter how insane that is. And if you believe something, then it takes such a priority in your life that you are willing to act on that thing. That's why this man believed that we were good enough people to watch his kids or his grandkids, and sure enough, he took off and just left them with us. But back in this passage, three separate times, not in the whole context of John 3, but just the last couple verses that we looked at, three separate times Jesus uses the word belief. This is what it's all about. Now, now think about this, because we know that in this story, Nicodemus and Jesus are standing face to face, right? Jesus tells Nicodemus that he has to believe. So obviously, Jesus isn't telling Nicodemus just to believe that he exists, because obviously they're past that point, right? Like that's, that's already a foregone conclusion. They're already there. So there has to be more to it than that. See, I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old, okay? And this means that there is literally always crying in my house. Like, all day, every day, for every reason that you can ever possibly think of, at any time, forever, right? Like, this is just my reality at this point. Peter's told me it's just a season, and I really hope he's right, but... <laughs> But this is where I am right now. And so when, when I hear that screaming and that crying, there are a few things that have to happen, right? But ultimately, I have to decide if someone is hurt or if someone's throwing a temper tantrum because these require two very different responses from dad, right? So, see, I'm the parent that if my kid is throwing a temper tantrum, particularly at home, because all three of my kids are really good at temper tantrums, I don't know what their mom's teaching them while I'm away, but... So see, if they're, if they're throwing a temper tantrum while at home, like, I'm the kind of person who I'm just, I'm just going to wait it out, right? Like, until you can figure out how to be a human being and treat me like a human being, you can go cry in your room or something, right? And I'll wait it out, and then I'll come back, and I'll talk to them, and we'll work through whatever just happened. But if I hear the scream, and one of my kids is hurt... You better believe I'm jumping up as quick as I can. I'm sprinting across the house faster than I knew I could, and I'm scooping the kids up in my arms, trying to figure out what happened, how I can help them, and how I can and fix this as fast as I can, right? But at the end of the day, all of this comes down to the fact that my actions are dictated by my beliefs. Do I believe that it's a temper tantrum, or do I believe that they're hurt? And my actions will be totally different based on that. See, you can tell me all day long that you believe in Jesus. You can tell Jesus all day long that, hey, I believe in you, Jesus. But he's going to be looking at your actions. He wants to see if your actions are following through with what you're actually saying. 
Because if your actions don't reflect the teachings of the gospel, then you have to wonder if you ever actually believed at all. If you've been in church for a while, you're likely familiar with something that that we call the Roman road. If you're unfamiliar, there are a group of passages in the book of Romans that that clearly lay out the plan of salvation. It's, It's one of the clearest places that we get the picture in the Bible. And right in the midst of the Roman road is Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he writes, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty clear, right? I mean, that's that's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. And and so we, we read that passage and we say things like, We talk about accepting Jesus into your heart and things like that, but this is deeper than that. There's more going on than that. See, there are two words that Paul very intentionally put together here, Lord and believe. See, if you believe in Jesus, then you believe that he is who he says he is, and you believe that you are who he says that you are. And that means that you believe that Jesus is the king of all kings. And you are submitting your life to him as your king or as your Lord, as this passage says. This is literally what the gospel is. This is what it's all about. And so can you see how clearly action is involved in this? Now, now let me be clear. I want to be very clear by this because I don't want you to have a guest preacher come in and go back telling Peter all sorts of crazy stuff. You are not saved by your actions, right? I want to be very clear about that. You are not saved by your actions. The only action that can save you is that of Jesus on the cross. But if you do truly believe in Jesus and declare him as your Lord, then there will be actions to follow. Philosopher James K.A. Smith once said this. He said, quote, We have to embed ourselves in a community of practice because this isn't just learning the right ideas or learning to think the right things about our work or our calling. It's also about learning to love the right things and want the right things. And that's really about the formation of spiritual habits, unquote. See, this is where this lines up with discipleship. This, this isn't simply talking about just salvation. And, and salvation isn't simply a, a get-out-of-hell-free prayer that we lob up to God and then forget about it, right? It's not just some magic words that we throw up. It's a trajectory. We're claiming that we are bringing our entire lives under the lordship of Jesus and continually practicing what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Our discipleship to Jesus will continually form and shape us. It will challenge our worldview. It will challenge our political ideologies. It will challenge how we think the church should look and act. It will change how we parent. It will change how we relate to people who look, think, and act differently than we do. Belief is forming new spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines. If you believe Jesus, then you believe that the life that he has called you to is far better than anything that you could ever possibly come up with on your own. 
Belief is the trajectory for visible life change that manifests in tangible actions. Belief is the visible life change that manifests in tangible actions. Church, belief will always result in actions. And if there's not, then we have to question whether or not we ever actually believed. It's, it's as simple as that, right? I mean, people often get confused about the relationship between faith and works, right? This is it. Genuine faith yields genuine works. And we can actually begin to see that in the life of Nicodemus. As we keep moving through kind of this character study of this man, we move forward. We were in John chapter 3 before. We're going to fast forward to John chapter 7 uh, and starting in verse 45. And there are these guards who have been, uh, they've, they've begun to talk to the Pharisees. And the guards were supposed to bring Jesus back so they could finally lock him up and get this crazy man off the streets. But they didn't bring Jesus with them. And so in John 7, 45, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. And the key in here, Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier. See, John wants you to remember, this is the same guy I was just talking about. This is his progression. He's, he's trying to help us track this. He was the one who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number. He asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? See, here we actually see Nicodemus stand up to the Pharisees the people he was a part of, and he actually starts to align himself with Jesus. He stands at the defense of Jesus. None of the other Pharisees were willing to do this. This was risky business for Nicodemus. He ran the risk of losing his job, of losing his credibility, of becoming socially ostracized. And you might think that this is a bit harsh because what he was, what he was saying was still true of the law which the Pharisees followed. But don't forget that the Pharisees were the same people who were willing to manipulate the law and change things based on their feelings towards Jesus. And see, this, this may not seem like a big deal, but you know, when, when I grew up in church, I was part of a church that, uh, that I've, I've moved quite a long way from at this point. And and I remember that as I, as I started to follow Jesus more and pursue Jesus more, uh, especially at the time as I was going through seminary, I just didn't see things lining up. And, and I had lots of questions and confusion. And ultimately, I just felt that the more and more I pursued Jesus, the harder time that I had fitting in, which was crazy to me. But, but ultimately, I came to this place where I realized that I couldn't teach the things that I believed in the church that I was a part of, or I had to teach things that I didn't believe. And I had a decision to make. And see, the problem was that I had just done my seminary training at a, den at a denominational seminary, which, which is basically just a fancy way of saying a non-accredited college, right? And uh, so why does this matter? Because I knew 
that if I focused and stood up for what I believed in and pursued Jesus as I saw him, that I would no longer be able to pursue becoming a pastor of one of the churches that I grew up in. And suddenly everything in my education would be thrown down the drain and it would be gone. And and the irony is that the reason that I'm standing up here speaking to you now as the pastor of another local church is because I made that commitment to Jesus. I pursued him at all costs, even when it looked like it may cost me everything. This is what Nicodemus was going through. This this was truly a huge step for him and showed that he was slowly realigning himself to become a full-fledged disciple of Jesus. But there's more to the story of Nicodemus. See, he stands up to them here, but then he's mentioned one more time in the Gospel of John. See, immediately following the crucifixion, the moment where we see the apostles of Jesus, those who followed him most closely, have left. They've turned their backs. They're going back to life before Jesus. It's at that moment that we jump into John chapter 19 and verse 38. We read this. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And then key in here. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. See, John is still trying to pull you back. He wants you to see the progression of Nicodemus. And then it says, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. So here's what's so important about this passage. Nicodemus was willing to associate himself with another Christ follower. Even if it may have been a baby step in this case. But Nicodemus also brought his own possessions to give to the burial of Jesus. He also did the work to make sure that Jesus had a proper burial. And see, key in here, church, what you give your time, your attention, your possessions, and your efforts to will declare to the rest of the world what it is that you truly believe in what you give your time, attention, possessions, and efforts to. will tell everybody else what it is that you believe in. See, you can tell people you believe whatever you want to tell them, right? We can say whatever we want. We can say what we believe all day long, but ultimately they're going to be looking at what are we investing in? What do our actions back up? What is our life really all about? And that's where they know what it is that you believe in. See, for Nicodemus, belief didn't just mean that he met with Jesus, saw that he was real, acknowledged that he was sent from God because he could do miracles. It was so much more than that. And in the same way for us, belief can never mean that we simply come and attend a church. And that's it. Now, now listen, there may be some of you here today that 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 is your step. 
That is a, a big step for you, and you are making the commitment to start coming to church. And I want to encourage you in that. That is a massive step in your relationship with Jesus. And I want to encourage you to keep pursuing that. But being a Christian means that we are constantly allowing Jesus to shape and to mold us. We are continually looking more and more like we're following Jesus. Just like the progression that we see in Nicodemus, slowly meeting with Jesus at night, standing up for him in front of the Pharisees, to eventually investing his possessions and his efforts into his relationship with Jesus. He slowly began to align himself with Jesus as a follower. See, First Baptist Hanford, your, your mission statement here is to love God, love people, and to serve the world, right? That's the outworking of your belief in Jesus. See, if you truly believe in Jesus, then you will see yourself begin to feel more and more comfortable with that mission statement. You'll eventually realize that, that you'll find yourself needing to fulfill that mission statement because you realize that that is literally what you were made for. You were put on this planet to love God, love people, and serve the world. That's what you're here for. That's the outworking of your belief in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means being a disciple of Jesus. And being a disciple of Jesus means loving God, loving people, and serving the world. And so to wrap this up, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he told his followers that he would be leaving them the Holy Spirit. And he told them that it would be a good thing for him to leave because the Holy Spirit would always be with him. While Jesus was a physical man walking with 12 people, he said the Holy Spirit will always be with all of the Christ followers, leading them. So knowing that, I think it's incredibly important for those of us who are Jesus followers to pause for a moment and ask the question, where is the Holy Spirit leading me? Where is he leading me? And, and maybe this is a moment that this actually becomes your prayer and you are simply praying to the Holy Spirit, asking him, where are you leading me? What is my next step? because he's always leading. He may be leading you to sit still for a moment and trust him. He may be leading you to take a step that you're not ready to take. But whatever it is, I can guarantee you that he is leading you and simply waiting for you to follow his leadership. Because if you truly believe in Jesus, then you will be his disciple and the Holy Spirit will lead you in that. So where is the Holy Spirit leading you? What does the first step look, look like for you? What does is, what is your next step look like for you? And, and see, I wish I could tell you. I wish it was a simple, clear-cut plan that I could just lay out there for you. But that's not how it works because it means that you have to sit, time, sit down and spend time in the Word of God, with God, seeking Him and asking Him, God, what is my next step? Where are you leading me? What does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus? Seek him and ask him what your next step in the kingdom of God is. 
See, for what it's worth, I can tell you that following the Holy Spirit is terrifying. But it is also the best thing that you ever can or will do. I've waited when it seemed insane. I've taken steps when I couldn't see the ground in front of me. And when it's all said and done, I can tell you with complete confidence that God is good. That God is good. So believe that he is good. And let that belief dictate your actions. Remain in Christ. Take your next step in the kingdom and believe. Because it's what you were made for. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus and for the love that he gives to us and the sacrifice that he paid for us. God, we ask that you would help the belief of each person in here and that that would drive our actions, it would motivate us to follow you, that, it would, that you would show us, God, what specific areas of discipleship you have for each of us. What is that next step for us? Whether it's serving a small group, whether it's, it's baptism or, or whatever else it may be, Jesus, make that clear to each person in here today. May you teach us to love you. And as we fall in love with you, may that overflow into becoming the church that you have called each of your followers to be. Help us to be about what you are about, Jesus. And as every head remains bowed and every eye remains closed, there may be some in here who who have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus before. And maybe you're like Nicodemus, uh, but, but still meeting with Jesus at night, trying to figure out who this man is and whether or not he's worth your time. And I want to encourage you that if you are interested in a relationship with Jesus this morning, that I'd, I'd love to lead you in a prayer uh, as we go through the ABCs of salvation. And I just ask that you would pray these words yourself. There are no magic words, but it comes from your heart. And so I want to lead you in that prayer this morning. And so first we'll pray, A, that we admit that we are broken, Jesus, that we are sinners in need of grace. We admit that we are broken and that we need you, Jesus. And B, we believe in you, Jesus. We believe that you are who you say you are. We believe that we are who you say we are. And we believe that you died on a cross for our brokenness and rose again from the grave three days later. And see, Jesus, we choose. We choose to follow you. We choose to follow you now, and we choose to follow you every day for the rest of our lives. Jesus, we love you, and we give our lives to you. And it's in your perfect name that we pray. Amen.